my fellow Americans. Now let me introduce to you, for the first time, your next Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and it turns out that Joe Biden is also color-conscious. For the first time in the history of the United States, a major presidential party has chosen a person of color, a woman of color, as the vice presidential nominee. Since Biden made his choice, many people have been trying to get to know Kamala Harris. There have been a lot of articles and profile pieces and background stories, but few people know Kamala like we in the Bay Area do. I've known Kamala and her sister Maya, Maya's daughter Mina, for nearly 20 years now. I've watched her rise in California national politics and partnered with her and her sister on several important political fights. On today's episode, we will discuss the Kamala that we know, and we will be joined by a very special guest who's worked even more closely with Kamala than I have. And to guide us through that conversation is my co-host and now part-time homeschool teacher, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Did you survive the start of the school year, and do you want to introduce our guest? Hi, Steve. Yes, uh, we've survived, if you could call it that, but yes, still here. Day one done, uh, and today will be day two. Several hundred more to go. And <laughs> <laughs> but who's counting? No, nobody's counting but me. <laughs> and yeah, so it goes on and on. It's just a little bit like Groundhog's Day. I do try to keep reminding myself to keep things in perspective. And uh, wishing all the parents out there good luck this school year. And I know I've said this before, but I'm particularly thinking of my friends and people I know who are single parents doing this by themselves, especially just given all the challenges during these times, that life in pandemic, schools not returning in person, education online, and lots of kids not really digging school online. I won't mention any names, but one of them lives, <laughs> my, one of them lives in my yeah, house. One of them starts with a K. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of that, you know, in addition to all her other amazing accomplishments, our guest today has written uh, a lot about and really eloquently and amazingly about um, challenges that single parents face since she herself is a single parent. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we might be able to touch upon that as well, just check in with her on what that reality is like. But first, let's talk about Kamala. And with that, we are so delighted to be joined today by our guest, Latifa Simon. In a lot of ways, and I told you this, Steve, is that I feel like it's not really just fair to have Latifa on just to talk about Kamala, since right. Latifa herself is so badass. Mm -hmm. And she's just somebody I admire so much. She's an incredible public figure in her own right and somebody who has done so much amazing work in the world already and continues to do so. And I'll just give some highlights of her career so far and her work so far. So in 2003, Latifa received the MacArthur Foundation prestigious genius award. So when I say she's a genius, I mean, it's like, she's not Literally. just, she's got an award to say <laughs> she was uh, officially a genius. And she was at that time, 26 years old, making her the youngest woman at the time to receive that prestigious award. She had received the MacArthur for her work as the executive director of the Center for Young Women's Development. And that's an organization she had run from the time that she was just 19 years old. And that center provided what MacArthur called a distinctive and bold program to guide troubled girls from delinquency and poverty to health and productive adulthoods. That work, by the way, is what brought her to the attention of a junior attorney in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. That attorney's name was 
Kamala Harris. <laughs> when Kamala was elected as the district attorney, she hired Latifa and asked her to set up a program for first-time offenders. And I'm really looking forward to asking Latifa about that work and her experience during that time. And lastly, in 2016, Latifa became the president of the Akinati Foundation, and she's the president of the foundation today, where she runs. One of the leading racial justice foundations in the country. Also, if all of that wasn't enough, in 2016, Latifa also became an elected official, running for and winning a seat on the governing board of the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, which we locals call BART. And currently, she is the president of that board. And perhaps most importantly, she is the mother of two daughters. So thank you so much, Latifa. You know it's been a long time since I've gotten to see you and hug you in person, but I am so grateful for this chance to be in conversation with you today with Steve. Oh, it's so good to be on. Hey, guys. Yes, thanks for joining us, Latifa. I know how busy you are. We really appreciate you making the time. Right. And as、uh, Charlene mentioned, you're you're in the family of Bay Area elected officials, and I'd just like to first clear something up. So. You're friends with Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs, who was on the podcast with wife a few weeks ago. You're also friends with San Francisco Supervisor Matt Haney. Now, according to social media, the three of you went bowling a couple years ago, and you <laughs> did not invite me. And I'd just like to know who won, was any money wagered, and who is the best bowler? Well, so I'm hoping, Steve, that you know this Thanksgiving. It was the day before Thanksgiving that we all went. That you'll come with us. You know, if the world has completely changed and we all actually get to see each other in person. If not this Thanksgiving Eve next year, what was hilarious is that Matt Haney does this weird twinkle toes thing. Oh my god! And I think because he's such a nerd, as we all are, you know, we think we're cool, but we're all actually like super ridiculously, you know, nerdy. I think he researched bowling techniques before,、oh、giving him that strategy. So yeah, he was the best bowler.、Um, We were at a bowling alley that had wine, so you know I just drank red wine and, and, and <laughs> threw, bowl, threw bowling balls down, and and it was it was amazing. What is so sweet about you know the three of us is we're all you know I'm I'm a little older than they are, elected officials, but we become family. We become、mm-hmm. family. Sort of the struggle of public service, and you know coming home, and we started che- every day. We started text. Chat at about six thirty, seven thirty, talking about our day and giving each other advice and laughing and the bonds that you know we've made over the years have been very special. Yeah. Next year, next year, Steve, you'll be with us. I'm writing. <laughs> I'm writing it down. Hey, and I let me know where I can sign up. That just sounds like so much fun because、uh, I like wine <laughs> <laughs> and and wine and bowling. That sounds fun.、Uh, so now that we're done talking about adventures with elected officials and sports. Let's move on and talk about another Bay Area elected official, Kamala Harris. So,、mm-hmm. Latifa, you've known Kamala for almost twenty years, right? Yeah, about twenty years. Can you tell us how you've come to know her? And my understanding, she was your mentor, right? You know, the senator is one of the most prolific people that I've ever met. Not because you know she's the senator of the great state of California, but I met Kamala. You know, the years. Ooh, the year the years are they're turning on each other. It was either two thousand two, two thousand three. I can't believe how old I am now because I、wow. still in my heart feel like a youth organizer. And then I realize I have a twenty four year old kid. We'll talk about that later. Wow. <laughs> I I I met then. She was actually the city. She was a deputy city attorney.、Mm. She had come into San Francisco and she was working for Louise Rennie. And Kamala started a task force. 
on sex trafficking in young women. And she called me one day. I was running a very then very small organization in the Tenderloin, uh, run formed by girls who were in systems. And, you know, this bright-eyed, I didn't, hadn't met her yet, but she was so, she talked so fast. She said, you know, Latifah, um, my name is Kamala Harris and I work for Louise Rennie and we're starting a task force. And I understand you work with girls on the streets and in jail. And I've been a prosecutor and I get the fact that girls in San Francisco and in Oakland are being arrested and charged for being on the street and being trafficked. And so much of my work at that point was going in every single day to 850 and trying to push my way into juvenile hearings to support young women who had been arrested the night before or the week before and were in cages for not only sex trafficking, but you know everything you can imagine, stealing clothes, um, being a part of the drug trade. And I had never, out in the criminal justice system, especially someone you know that had a history of prosecution, speak that language. And I met with her a few days later, and I've got to say, um, you know, Kamala was like in her early 30s. And I thought, you know, she was an elder at that point. I was in my early <laughs> 20s. But, you know, being a girl from San Francisco, a black girl from San Francisco, I had never met a young attorney who spoke and, you know, who really almost, you know, she, it was, I remember talking to her, it was almost like she was singing her words about what she wanted to do in San Francisco. And the young women that she, she felt like she defended as, you know, a district attorney in Oakland, um, as a, a, uh, ADA. We slowly, you know, developed a friendship. And I will never forget the first day that she sort of launched her task force on young women and sex trafficking. She asked me to bring young women to that meeting. And, you know, I called girls who I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't even employing the girls who I felt like that needed to be there. There was one young woman in particular um, who was 14 years old and she would stop by my center every now and then. But I had her cell phone number. I called her. I said, I want you to meet this woman. There's a black woman who's organizing around the stuff that, you know, we've been doing political education on the streets about. I want you to meet her. I want you to see her. I walk in with these young women. The young woman that I'm speaking of, her name was Helen. She had the most tragic, most in intense story you would ever, ever, ever read about, think about. Kamala not knowing any of those young women, she directly went to Helen and held her face and said, baby, I'm so glad you're here. Sit with me. And it was really on that day. I mean, the hell that Helen had been through in her home and on the streets. I was like, wherever that woman goes, I want to be there too. There's an instinctual power that Kamala has, a force and an understanding having, you know, worked with victims for years and years and years where she saw her. And then it was that moment I really, I trusted her. We worked together for a few more years. She would come by the office every three weeks and do know your rights trainings with the girls. Kamala used to wear Converse. Somebody told me she still does, but she... <laughs> And she would bring her flip chart and, uh, you know, her easel. And um, she was consistent. And this is before she ran for office. She loved us and we loved her. That's how I met her. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that with me. I just felt like chills when you were talking about her holding that young woman, you know, yeah. that way. And that kind of empathy and heart that you just um, conveyed to that story. I just feel like that doesn't always come across in a lot of these articles that we read and I was particularly moved when I saw a video clip of an interview that you gave when you were talking about 
so that that heart and that love and that passion and fight the way that she fights and champions for young women you talked about how she forced you to go to college and just did a lot of tough love on you uh, could you just briefly talk about that yeah so you know i was working at the center and i had you know i we started doing a lot of work on the task force and she would in, when she was elected she, this was years later she would invite me to meetings um and, and we started spending a lot of time together professionally and she just kind of took me under her wing. And again, let me tell you, she was a prosecutor. I spent my young life, you know, essentially fighting against young prosecutors, not elected, but ADAs every single day who were throwing the young women that I loved, not only in juvenile hall, but sending them to both prison and the California Youth Authority for nonviolent crimes. Uh, district attorneys were not my friend. When Kamala decided to run, within days of her winning, she called me and said, you know, you should, you should think about coming over here. I know what you're doing over there. You should think about it. It took a year of a, a lot of conversations. And finally, you know, she said, if you want to continue to change the world, do you want to do it? You know, standing outside begging my office to let the young women that you love go, or do you want to change it inside? And that was such a compelling moment for me. And I said, all right, District Attorney Harris, give me, give me a few months. Let me figure this out. This is my home, my organizational political home. But I believe what you're trying to do, and I understand so deeply how this system works. And I joined her. Um, but in joining her, again, leaving this organization that I helped to build, one of the things she said was, we have to be excellent. And you're going to work here full time, and you're going to apply to college. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't been to school and I had a little girl at the time and she said, you bring her, bring her after, you know, pick her up, bring her back. When I was developing that program back on track with Kamala, I didn't have good daycare. I was, you know, still living with my mom and we were living in low income housing. Bring that baby. She would say, bring her to the office. She used to say, my mother used to bring me to the office, apply to school. Let me read your papers. If you're going to work here and get a government salary, you're going to show me your report card every quarter and I was wow. like five year old you know every quarter bringing my report card into Kamala Harris's office she's tough she's the toughest boss that I believe I will ever have she doesn't mince her words at all um, but it, it comes from love it comes from love it comes from being a woman of color a woman of color who had a you know migrant immigrant mother who came here with you know her backpack and her books to make a new life for herself. And we get that from her. If anyone who's ever worked for her, you don't slide by that woman. She's going to make you work. That's incredible. So I know you've been in the K-Hive for a long time. I hear that's <laughs> what they call, I love that, what they call fans, supporters of Kamala. What have these past few months been like during the vice presidential selection process, which I think, and they think this is accurate, it's been one of the most intense and highly observed and highly watched vice presidential election processes, definitely in our lifetime, if not ever in our history. I mean, there were so many, there's so many talented women that were lifted up, um, women that are my heroes, political heroes, knowing what you have to actually sacrifice if you sacrifice your life for public service. You know, I was cheering for, I was cheering for them all. You know, I, 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 you want a woman of color, you want progressive women in positions that allow them not only an opportunity to sort of shoot off from the rooftops, you know, their politics and belief, beliefs about what a democracy could avail, but 
for me, you know, I was, I was, I was hoping for Kamala, but at the end of the day, I was like, no, there's, there, there's no way. There's, there's no way there's there. He's going to choose a white woman or he's going to choose somebody who's super safe. And, and I was on a webinar last week for a girls organization, actually talking about girls of color in the Bay area. And I was telling Steve earlier that I'm, I'm not great with Zoom and notifications and all this. So I'm on Zoom on this webinar and my computer starts binging and I couldn't stop the messages. It was bing, 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 bing. And I was, you know, I'm on the, it's a webinar where I'm presenting and I was that auntie who I had to say, you know, young woman, give me a second. I got to go into systems. I got to figure something <laughs> out. There's like 18 people. But like, it was ridiculous. Um, and I didn't want to look at my phone. I didn't want to open up those messages that were coming on my screen. And as the webinar ended and the facilitator was wrapping up, I looked at my cell phone. I looked at the messages that were popping up, not on my screen, but on my phone. And my, you know, I, I, was, I got really emotional really quick because the Kamala Harris that I know, who made me come in her office every single day for five years and give her a report on what we were doing with each one of the hundreds of young people we were working with, she has this righteous indignation, this love. This is the same woman when I told her my little girl at the time, who's now at Howard Law, was playing the violin, bought her a violin hip hop CD the next day. This is the same woman. When I came to work with her on the first day, I didn't own dress up clothes. And I thought you hired an organizer. I'm gonna wear my regular clothes. She sent me home and gave me a suit the next day. I, I just couldn't believe that someone who many would perceive as not being connected to community. I, I, I know her and I know how she used to call the women who had lost their children literally the night before, she would have us staff those calls and let them know that she was the elected district attorney and she wanted them to see justice. And I know how complicated that role was. And for her to be selected to be in the White House, potentially with this president, making very difficult decisions about national security and the economy and immigration and justice, I, I still can't believe it. So it's, for you know, for me, for my daughter, for girls of color, for folks who are progressive, folks who are conservative, they have no choice but to look at what America is in that woman. You know, again, a Black woman who has two parents with an immigration story, a Black woman who went to a public law school, a Black woman who chose to, you know, work in the depths of 850 Bryant, which is not an elegant place to try to move structural change. I, I'm I'm still super juiced. Lativa, oh, I'm like got a lump in my throat and you've caught me off guard. I'm like, Lativa, don't do this to me. It's, like, it's too early. So it's, I really appreciate you sharing that insight because um, I, I'm very moved by the, the details of the, from your personal experience with her. I really got the feeling of how you must felt that moment you heard the news. Steve, from you, similarly, what was it like for you when you heard the, the news? Yeah, no, it's, well, I was just thinking that, you know, it's generational. I think we talked about last time getting to this point of time right, where I have cell phones of three people who are potentially could have been the vice president. Um, although, <laughs> although I'm not sure Kamala has the same cell. Maybe people, we can, we can compare. You can let me know if the number I have is still the right number. But I was somewhat, similar a little bit to Latifah. I was out doing my, doing my run when the decision came in. And then my, my uh, watch, my Garmin watch is tied to my phone. And I started getting these text messages. And so I couldn't, I, they knew they were coming in. Actually, one of them, first one was from Emmy, who's Kumo worked with us. 
And, I, and so I thought it probably was about VP, but I didn't know what it said. Then I got one from my running buddies, um, Laura Brady and, and then Natalie Vu. And then they were like, but they text me about all kinds of stuff all the time. So I was like, I think this is probably VP, but not. I'm in the middle of my run. And what do I do anyways? And then my dad called. And was like, oh, this must be VP, right? So, but I couldn't stop to look. I, mean, I didn't want to, what was the point of stopping? Because I had to finish my run anyways. So I had this like half mile of suspension. So for me, I think it was a, it was a lot of different, it was a different, set of emotion, complicated set of emotions. And I think that now that I've had some time to process and watch it all play itself out. Um, and frankly, since, especially since these backstories have come out in the uh, Washington Post, New York Times, about how the decision was made and how close we came to having yet another all-white ticket, I've been able to actually get some more perspective on it. So uh, let me just share yeah, a, few, a few different thoughts. And so first, and it cannot skip over this. I mean, people say, oh, yes, it's historic. Let me move on. But it's worth dwelling on for a moment, right? I mean, a woman, a person of color, finally desegregating that office that has been whites only for 200 plus years. Mm -hmm. So that in itself is very important. And we really do need to stop and celebrate that. And on that front, I mean, it reminds me of the story when Kamala ran for uh, district attorney. They put out a mailer. And then on one side of the mailer, they had picture of every single person who had been district attorney of San Francisco, a black and white picture of every single person, every single person had been a white man. And then you turn it over and there's this big color photo of Kamala. And so just the contrast, you know, the contrast, and that's really what we're having, you know, with her uh, uh, moving up to this next level. So there's that, this historic nature. Second is the political strategic significance of this. And then again, seeing how they almost went, you know, like Gretchen Whitmer from uh, Michigan was very much in the mix and he, you know, Biden really kind of wanted to choose her. What that would have meant in terms of the Democratic strategy, you have to go get the suburban whites in the Midwest and that's the way the Democrats have always done it. But by choosing Kamala, it's explicitly acknowledging, empowering and embracing the new American majority. And so as a strategic direction, that's very significant. Now, it's, you know, really, I mean, it's a tragic period, right, that George Floyd was murdered, but that it took a racial reckoning of the type that we had to force the party to be able to take this step. But what did uh, Michelle Obama say in her speech at the convention? It is what it is. Oh, man. Right. I, I just want a T-shirt of her face with those words. That's right. <laughs> so my reflection then, so I think, in the, I definitely think that particularly in, the, in terms of winning this election, that it's a very smart tactical pick. Right. I mean, you're exciting people of color and black folks without overly alarming moderates. Right. People started hearing about Karen Bass going to Cuba and all this stuff. They're like, oh, wait, we didn't quite know she was that left. And so they didn't give it doesn't give the right wing a lot of fodder to go after. And so it's a tactical matter between now and November. And it's a tightrope. Right. To be in politics to be able to both inspire people of color without overly scaring white people. And, you know, I, I dealt with that elected official. I dealt with that running for office. And so it's a difficult balancing act. And on that front, I think they actually did very well. And you're seeing it in the increased polls. You're seeing it in the money that's uh, flowing into the campaign. So I definitely think that it was smart in that, in that regard. So, Steve, I hear that you are definitely landed in a place where you, you recognize it was smart, but what other feelings do you have? Like, I, I just have to check in with you because it's no secret. You've been a longtime supporter of um, Stacey and including during this selection process. And you've been consistently saying that you thought that she would be the best pick. So just checking in what your feelings are now 
any disappointment, any sort of reflections? Yeah, no, and it's it's not. I mean, it's hard because there's one spot, right? And so you almost inevitably try to compare or pit people against each other. And that's not. It's really not about that. I mean, I was actually talking to somebody. Well, I've been doing all this work, in the, and we're going to talk about this in a future podcast episode about the extent and ferocity of the right wing attempt to destroy this election. And then I've been asking who's doing all the work to counter that, who on the Democratic side. And everyone keeps coming back to, well, the single best, most comprehensive, detailed effort is what Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams are doing, right? So I just think that Stacey is of another order in terms of methodical, strategic, long-term thinking that has been like distinctive. And, and then, you know, we've worked very closely with her. So the, really the prospect of being able to partner with her on a long-term strategic plan in this country was very exciting. But I had like come to terms with all the articles was saying, we talked about in the last podcast. It's like, well, it doesn't seem like she's going to be in the final mix, et cetera. So I made my peace with it. This will be governor in 2022. We'll take it from there. But then I, I got word Monday that she was more in the mix than I thought. And so I was all like, oh, maybe Stacy really could actually. So my hopes got back up again. And so then it took me a while once it came out to kind of, uh, so there was a little bit of disappointment with that. But, um, but, you know, I think it was somebody, somebody put out on Twitter, everybody's, you know, everyone's got their opinions on Twitter. And someone said, um, can you just let black women have this moment? And that really resonated with me. And frankly, that's a lot of why I wanted to be able to have Latifah join us to really share that experience with people um, because it is profound and significant and historic. And uh, we wanted to honor that. I did want to turn to kind of digging in a bit. And Latifah, I do want to hear your response to, you know, basically some of the criticism of Kamala that we have been hearing over time. And again, a lot of it is political, but some of it is, you know, also coming from progressives, including uh, other black progressives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just to kind of sum up for some of our listeners who might not have necessarily the insight to what I'm talking about is that there have been critics of Kamala over, especially this election cycle, Mm -hmm. of her having a record and passed as a top cop and that her record in law enforcement has been used by critics, including during the primaries and during this VP selection process, as something that they feel is a concern. And in social media and even in these recent months in light of Black Lives Matter protests and movement, what I'm talking about is the concerns and frustrations and criticism about her past as a prosecutor and her record and impact on the lives of African-Americans. So Latifa, um, I wanted to hear from you. I know you had a forceful defense of her record in a letter to the editor in the New York Times last year. And I'll share just a bit of what you wrote in that letter. You called Kamala a progressive prosecutor. You said she became a prosecutor to give the job a perspective it sorely lacked, a voice for the voiceless and vulnerable. And that's what she did. And so I wanted to ask you to just share a bit more about what you see, what you think of that criticism and what you've seen in terms of Kamala being a reformer. Yeah, you know, 20 years ago when I, oh, when I say that, it, just, it still makes me shiver. <laughs> you know, 20 years ago when I met Kamala and when she told me initially that she was going to run for the district attorney's seat in San Francisco, you know, I had been working with young women under um, now the late Terrence Hallinan when he was the district attorney. And, um, you know, I knew that 
most of the young women that I was going to see every single week on Thursday in Ventura, which was a youth, uh, youth prison for girls in California. All the girls from around the state were sent there to that one facility. You know, I knew what was happening in that district attorney's office, but it wasn't until I came to work at the DA's office. I went to go work in that belly of the beast under Kamala Harris, who convinced me that it made sense for us to do some retooling of a, a broken system. We created a reentry program, but every single day, you know, I was in that office and, you know, it has two floors on the second floor is misdemeanors. The third floor, it's felonies. There was about 200 attorneys who worked there. And I actually got a real close-up look at the system. And we called Kamala's office the front office. And I also, strangely enough, as an organizer, made friends with young prosecutors. And I actually saw them get cases in the morning. Many of those cases would never make it upstairs, meaning that Kamala wouldn't see those cases. But every single pleading, every single document had Harris's name on it. And I learned a really important thing about leadership, you know, during that time, that it didn't matter who was working up a case or whether it was, again, a horrific case or if it was a, a low-level case, that that woman was going to have to take responsibility for those 200 attorneys and what they were doing. I saw that every single day. In any small organization, any public system, when somebody decides that, or they, they, they move on that hubris that they want to lead, you are responsible for every single action of every single person in your organization. And I've seen Kamala over the years talk about that dichotomy, the, the reality, what you do is when you, when you step up, you, you take responsibility. There are mistakes going to be made. But my role in that office was, it was a close-up role and seeing the, the tinkering and the things that we could do you know, to shift some of that madness, shift some of the, the, the internalized racism that was everywhere. Um, as I say internal in terms of the actual institution, when we started back on track, there were lawyers in the office who had been there for 20, 25 years, um, and they would make mockery of the work that we were doing. I, I, I had heard uh, in elevators and in the hallways, um, white attorneys saying things about the elected DA that were horrific um, and racist and sexist, uh, but that woman stood it out. I think, though, in closing, like, we should all... I don't care if it's the vice president. I don't care if you are on the mosquito abatement board. We should have, democracy implores us um, to be extremely critical of our elected officials. I, I don't believe that you, you should go into service and not expect that. What I do know though, and like, you know, how, you know, when I see Stacey Abrams, you know, speaking about Stacey on TV and she shakes down elected officials who aren't on their task. That's the whole point of democracy. We see advocates saying, you know what, you could have done better. But 20 years ago, no one in any elected district attorney's office was talking about creating antidotes for the drug war, except for Kamala Harris. And frankly, she's been one of the most progressive senators that, you know, that body has ever seen. And so we talk about evolution and learning. Kamala was but 36 when she came, 36, 37 when she came in that office. And her evolution to me, when she told me she was running for Senate, she was like, you know, these laws don't work. She called me. I was like, why don't you want to run for Senate? You're the attorney general. She's like, Latifah, we have to start writing the laws. And anyone, if you think of Kim Fox, if you think of Stephanie Morales, who was a DA in Portsmouth, Virginia, I want those women to run for higher office, understanding and knowing that systems are broken. 
And we need their voices. We need Kamala's voice. So I want to ask about that, um, Latif, in terms of the this question of evolution has come up. And it was interesting to me watching, well, again, having been elected official, having been, uh, you know, African-American elected official in a city where still, you know, most of the voters were white. And even though I was practicing law, right, I remember feeling like I would get up and I'd be like, I want to wear a, like a flashy tie or something. Then, <laughs> but I'm all like, you're already going to be a black man stepping into a courtroom. So that's already challenging. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. You have to be more aware. During the campaign, it seemed like Kamala got, was more kind of relaxed and unleashed. And I don't know if you would, if you, you experienced that, but it certainly seemed like she was more able to more be herself and less kind of measured during the presidential. And so I did note that. But then also in the past few months, she's been much more forceful around actual reforms of the criminal justice system. And I'm curious, do you think that is an evolution or do you think that is just kind of who she's always been is now feeling free to speak up around it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a difficult question. I'm not, I think, you know, when we're, I think now I'm 43, when I think of when I was 36 in my, my community organizing jobs, my foundation jobs, my ED jobs, I think about who I am just a few years later and while I put my best intent on in trying to move the needle, the wisdom that I had from succeeding and failing um, has created, I'm a different person than I was. And so when I say evolution, as it relates to now Senator Harris, vice president candidate Harris, um, I believe that that woman stepped into that role, eyes ablazing. And the natural evolution of one in their career to understand politics, to understand what you can and cannot do in systems, but you're right. You know, when I would watch TV and I said, oh, my God, was that laugh that we all mm-hmm. know, but also that super, that, that tough wit. She has broken every barrier, every barrier. And, you know, I think of Stacy, and I think of Barbara Lee and I think of Karen. And I mean, there's so many others of these structures and these systems were developed in contradiction to black women being able to lead yeah. and be able to <laughs> be able to shake things up. I just think our great grandmothers could never have imagined. I was watching the JFK library just uh, release this video of leaders uh, reciting JFK's speech. And the first person is, is Stacey Abrams. And I just think about this day and what it looks is so different for my daughter than it was even just for me, not to mention my mother and my grandmother. People should evolve. Kamala, you know, she's she's bringing so many of us with her in spirit and she should be who she is. And I, I think that the presidential campaign gave us a little bit of that flavor of all of us. Um, Kamala does like to dance. She does really like music. She likes to cook. She's also, you know, if you've worked with her, you saw her when she accepted the nomination the other day or when, you know, when Biden and her came out, that tough wit, when you see her, (laughs) when you see her in committee, you know, grilling those folks, Mm -hmm. that's how she was with us in, in, in that little office, you know, on Bryan Street. So I think hopefully we'll be able to see with all of these black women rising, who they are, how they take no mess, and that the performative nature of politics we've seen with Donald Trump, we actually can be who we are. Yeah. If that fool can be, you know, ridiculous, <laughs> we can be our excellent selves. Yeah. That's a good bumper sticker. So thank you, Lativa. And I especially want to thank you for the reminder of the historical context, because I do think that that gets lost. I think one of the upsides 
of this VP selection process is the normalization of, well, they're all women and majority are black, but then to step back, and I said this in the last episode, and to say, you know what, look how far we've come and let's not, you know, take it for granted. And it is a good reminder of our foremothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers, what they might be saying now, seeing what's happening and seeing someone like Kamala take the stage like that. I wanted to share here real quickly this clip of Kamala talking about criminal justice reform. What our communities have known for generations, which is the discriminatory implementation and enforcement of the laws and, and the need, therefore, to reform these systems and also hold accountable those who abuse these systems and who engage in the kind of conduct that caused that man to die needlessly. Latifa, as I had shared with our listeners earlier, you are in your own right a super badass. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that we get to also talk a bit about your own career and your decision to get into politics. So why did you decide to run for office and why the BART board? Yeah, I, I'm, I ask myself that every single day. Why did I decide to do this? <laughs> as as does the, every Bay Area elected official of color. Oh my goodness, with the late night readings and the emergencies and the crisis that just, you know, it's never ending. That's the, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, local politics is, and when you think of local politics, especially the BART board. When I decided to run, there were so many folks, you know, including Uncle Steve, like the BART board. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> exactly what I said, BART board. So many folks know that, you know, I, I have two kids, you know, in 2014, I lost my husband, who was an amazing activist in the Bay Area from leukemia. I was back on public transportation. I don't drive. I'm legally blind. And I literally, it, I wish it was deeper. I was on BART one day with Layla, who's now in nine, but she was about four and a half. And I just said I should run for BART board. Um, <laughs> you know, I literally, like, well, what else could I lose? You know, I lost so much. We had, we had filed for bankruptcy and I had no money and I was back on the bus. Two, two weeks before Kevin died, he was still driving me around. And there's something about the grief that I, not only that I was going through, but the clinical nature of his disease where I was, you know, in hospitals for two years. We lived in, 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 in hospitals and I thought about a lot of stuff that what if, what if my life changed? What if he's not going to be here? And I remember the day that Oscar was killed um, or the day that we found out. And this was before Kevin's illness. And he was uh, like, I'm Oscar never Grant, right. the, was killed by the BART police, right? Yes. Oscar Grant was killed by the BART police the, on New Year's Eve in 2009. And I remember being with Kevin before Layla. And he said, I'm never writing BART again. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple of expletives there. But he was like, we just, you know, we're not safe anywhere. If that baby got killed on his belly with his hands tied behind his back. And I thought of those words. And I thought of now being, being tethered to a system again with a child by myself in the world and a lot of again having lost everything why not let me I, literally let me run for office i didn't even know what office what you know what the districts were but I, I knew there was an election year and when i decided to run for office i called folks like kimberly ellis um i went through at a program called emerge and she was the executive director and i was like i'm going for bart board and she said what district and i said i had no idea <laughs> i don't know 
but I want to run. And we found out there was actually an election in my district that year. There was an incumbent. And I started meeting with folks from organizations like public advocates and transportation advocates and developed a politic, really, from my own personal experience, but also realizing there was tens of thousands of people all over the Bay Area that were transit dependent that there was a police department that needed to be reformed, that, you know, like the rent is too damn high, BART is too damn expensive. And they needed a black woman's voice on that board. I'm still the only black person on that board. I'm the only black woman on that board. I, I ran in a very large district, three counties, 19 cities, bigger than a congressional district, won every city. And in the last four years, I've been able to do more things that I ever thought I could do. You know, reducing youth fare, reforming police, you know, thinking about smart building, TOD, or transit-oriented development on BART, in, in BART parking lots, housing, all these things that I never thought possible. But the power, what I tell people all the time who are thinking about lo- local district races or special district races, the power of your index finger being able to vote yes, no, or abstain, we have to be on the other side of the dais. We have to be at the dais. And um, it's, it's been extremely cool. And I'm running for re-election and I'm going to win, even though the POA is after me, but that's okay. <laughs> right. So what's, what's the police officers union is out to get you. So what's, what's that all about? Yeah. So, you know, I um, as a president of the board this year, you know, it was clear to me after George, George Floyd's death, that since Oscar's murder 10 years ago, there have been reforms, but it wasn't good enough. And if I'm going to do anything in this role, it should be, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing. So I worked with the chief and our general manager, and I actually said, we need to actually come out and say that we are still racist. We put out a press release that said we were going to battle the internal racism in our department and that we were going to set forth new reforms and we were going to take money from police officer positions and increase our safety staff with non-armed people. And so, you know, the POA was big mad. They were big mad at my ambassador program that I ran on that we got, that we implemented to hire, again, hire staff, that safety staff that weren't armed. So they, you know, I, I filed my papers on a Wednesday and they got someone to run against me who I'd actually kicked off of our police commission because she wasn't about reform. I kicked her off when I got elected and they've, they, they're putting resources behind her to run. What's important to me it's not about my opponent. It's about when you step outside and you actually get things done, folks should be after you. And I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of no police union, particularly because I know that I'm not done. And, and, and for me, BART is the spine of the Bay Area and public transportation and mobility for disabled people, for elderly folks, for young people, for essential workers. It's how we move. It's how we navigate. And they need, they, they, they need, you know, sort of this homegirl, this homegirl uh, energy that I'm giving. And, I'm, you know, I have a policy degree and I'm just going to keep on moving with what I've learned, what I've experienced to, to make change. They can come after me, but we're stronger than racist ideas and we're stronger than folks who don't want to see progress. And there's no turning back. You know, I, I, I listen to Stacey's speeches all the time. She always, there's no turning back. You know, once we move forward, there's no way that we can go back. And I feel like that. And you have a website for the campaign, I presume? I'll give that out. First of all, can I just say, Uncle Steve, that COVID is messing up my magic. So, I, yes, I, I'm, I've launched a website, but it's taken <laughs> a really long time to like get to the Secretary of State and have them give me my FPPC number. But it's latifaforbart.com. That's L-A-T-E-E-F-A-H for Bart, F-O-R, Bart. 
com. Everybody check it out. And Latifa, I, I don't know if I've ever gotten to say this to you in person, but you inspire me so much. And I know you inspire a lot of people. And I just feel so grateful to know you and know that you're out there doing your thing. We need you. And um, thank you so much for joining us today. I love you. Well, we, you have my number. He says once the pandemic ends, you guys go bowling again. I Let's will, do uh, it. expect to call. I can't wait. Okay, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. We'd like to thank our special guest, Latifa Simon, who just might be the next U.S. Secretary of Transportation. She has and will have friends in very high places. You can follow Latifa on Twitter, where her handle is at Latifa Simon, L-A-T-E-E-F-A-H-S-I-M-O-N. And if you haven't yet joined our email list, you can sign up at democracyincolor.com. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the expert assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. We talked on this pod about the role of mothers in terms of shaping us. And we're going to leave you with this clip of Kamala talking during the presidential campaign about her mother and her mother's role in making Kamala's career possible. Until next time, keep the faith. My mother, who raised me and my sister, was a proud woman. She was a brown woman. She was a woman with a heavy accent. She was a woman who many times people would overlook her or not take her seriously or because of her accent assume things about her intelligence. Now every time my mother proved them wrong. Every time she proved them wrong. And because of who my mother was and what she believed, what she had the ability to dream was possible and then work to make possible. The fact that my mother never asked anyone permission to tell her what was possible is why within one generation, I stand here as a serious candidate for president of the United States.